All right, so the verses uh, today are verses Exodus 20, 1 through 3, and verse 14. Um, and the God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Thanks, man. I got you. you can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance uh, to come before your word. Thank you for the ways that you uh, continue to shape us, mold us, change us, and conform us to the image of your Son. God, thank you for the power your word has uh, to transform lives. So many times, God, we come uh, to our own lives and we're disappointed uh, at our inability to change, our inability to be transformed. We feel stuck and captive and powerless. And so, God, we come today dependent upon you, dependent upon uh, the power that you have. But, God, we know your power is the same power, the Holy Spirit, who raised Christ from the dead. So if you can raise your Son from the dead, you can transform our lives. And so, God, we come dependent upon you, dependent upon that transformation each and every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Today we come uh, to the seventh commandment, and uh, I know some of our, our parents... Uh, knowing that our kids are tracking along at 9.30, they've been going, hey, uh, what are y'all going to do when you uh, teach the kids about the seventh commandment? So uh, adultery uh, is probably one of the topics that uh, doesn't, doesn't come up in polite conversation uh, at dinner with people you don't know very well. We don't, we don't talk about uh, those kind of issues publicly a whole lot. Uh, but we are committed to preaching the Bible, and the Bible is not shy about any subject and so uh, we won't be either. We're going to keep preaching through God's Word. Uh, we don't skip over passages about money just because money is sensitive. And uh, similarly, we don't skip over passages about sex just because that's also a sensitive subject. We come today uh, looking at God's Word and asking Him uh, to speak to us uh, however He so desires. I do know that this being a sensitive subject, maybe uh, even before uh, we start, as we just read that command, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, there's probably different groups of people, different things that go through uh, your mind, kind of depending on your situation and your, your circumstance. Uh, so I tried to think of, of who that might be. For somebody who has uh, committed adultery and has repented of that and come back and found forgiveness in the Lord, a sermon on, on adultery may lead that person to just feeling further condemnation, to, feel, to feeling the, the weight of that in, in a new way. To somebody who is living in a, a sexual sin like adultery, a sermon on, on adultery, they may just be tempted to ignore it, just to kind of blot it out. Uh, or maybe they just didn't come today because they knew this was coming. I don't know. Um, for somebody who has, uh, by all indicators, been externally and physically uh, faithful to a spouse, the temptation may be to come to this command full of pride and, and arrogance, thinking we've got this figured out. For somebody who's a little bit prudish or squeamish around all things related to Sex, they may just feel embarrassed and uncomfortable for the next 30 minutes. I don't, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's where you are. But there might be another group, either of those who are single or for any number of other reasons, might think this command's just not relevant to us and just kind of tune, tune out. But I, I've got a pretty lofty goal today. I've got a pretty, pretty high ambition, uh, and that is to, to preach this command in a way that applies to each and every one of us, in a way that is speaking the truth and the gospel uh, into our lives, no matter what you brought into this morning and no matter what your context may be. My goal is that for the repentant, you would find grace. My goal is that for the wayward, you would be 
convicted. My goal is for those who are externally faithful but tempted by pride, that you would be humbled. For the prudish, I pray that you would face reality. And for the ones who may think this is irrelevant and all of us uh, in this group, I, I pray that we all will be drawn to the character of God himself. Probably be drawn to God's very nature. There may be a lofty goal, but I think God's word has that kind of power, no matter where we come from. And the, the place that I think is helpful to start is where we have noticed all the way through the Ten Commandments and why we've titled this series Grace and Law, is that just like all ten of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment is, it is a law, it is a rule, it is a regulation, but it's also a gift, a precious gift from God to us. And here's why. Many times we've asked these Ten Commandments, what kind of God, who, who is God that He would give us this command? What kind of God would forbid adultery? The God who is the one true God of the universe who forbids adultery, He does so as a, a gracious gift because He wants to give to us a loving, faithful, committed, steadfast, lifelong relationship of marriage. That's what God values. The God who outlaws and forbids adultery is the God who values marriage and values faithfulness in relationship. The God who forbids adultery is the God who is faithful to us even when we are faithless. By forbidding adultery, He is commending something to us. He's giving us a gracious gift. And specific to this, to this command, we can see God's design, God's precious design for one of the most foundational human relationships. One of the approaches we've taken to these commands uh, is to ask why. Well, why, why would God give us this command? What, what's His intention? From, from the rest of Scripture, as we kind of zoom out from this one verse, why, why would God forbid adultery? What's, what's going on with that within, in, in His desires? And I think answering that will begin to, to help reach all of us, no matter where you come into this, this commandment with your history and whatever else may be going on. Biblically, why, why did He forbid adultery? And I, I think we can say this faithfully, faithful to God's Word. Adultery tears at the sacred design for the one flesh union of marriage. Adultery tears at the sacred design for the one flesh union of marriage. God created marriage as this sacred covenant, this sacred bond between one man and one woman. And so it's worth, it's worth pausing and, and backing up to the very beginning of the Bible to see what that, was, what that was intended to be from the very beginning. We find that in the first two chapters of, of Genesis, first two chapters of the Bible, God's design uh, for marriage is found right at the beginning. But interestingly enough, I think the, the foundation of marriage goes back even further than the first days of creation. I think it goes back into eternity past. Last year, as we uh, took one short series, we studied the Trinity. And there we saw in John 17, 24, where Jesus prays to the Father. He says, you love me before the foundation of the world. And we considered what was God doing before the world was created? Was he, was he bored? Was he, was he just had nothing to do and no, nothing? So he just created the world because he needed something to do? No. God, before eternity, but before creation and all of eternity, God has always had a perfect loving, faithful, satisfying relationship of love within himself, within the three persons of the Trinity. And I know that makes your mind kind of spin a little bit. And when we studied the Trinity, we had to like really put on our thinking caps. But if we think about what was going on before the world, God was happy. He's always been happy. He's always been satisfied. God did not create you and me to fill some void in his life as if he needed something. 
He needs nothing. He has always been perfectly content, perfectly happy within himself. So why did he create us? He created us out of the overflow of love that he has always had within himself. He had so much love between the Father and the Son through the Spirit that he wanted to share that with someone else. And so he created all the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets. He created the sun and the moon and every mountain and river. And then he said, I'm going to create one more, one more thing. And he didn't just create one, he created two. He created male and female in his image. And he did so creating two, creating a relationship so that we, in his image, could begin to enjoy a relationship with one another and a relationship with him. The foundation of marriage goes back even further than Genesis 1 and 2. It goes back to the very core of who God is. He is a loving, his very nature, he is love. And that's what he created us to enjoy. Enjoy a relationship of love. Before creation, he intended us to be able to have that same kind of loving relationship that he has always had. If you follow through Genesis 1, you know, maybe you're familiar with that story. And in Genesis 1, every time he creates something, he says, and it was good. It was good. You keep following the way through after the six days, he says it was very good. But you know the first time he says something was not good? He actually didn't wait till after the fall. It wasn't just after sin that something was not good. In Genesis 2.18, he says it was not good that man should be alone. And so that's why he created woman. He brought, he brought for the, before he created Eve for Adam, he brought before him every animal of the field, every animal of the, of the sky, of the, of the earth and the sea. And each of them he named, and it says, among all the animals, all creation, no, no helper, no companion, no friend was found for him. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and he took a rib from his side and formed from that rib the woman, and brought the woman to the man. And we read in Genesis 2, 23, it says, he says, this at last, finally, at last, finally, this is what I've been waiting for. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she should be called woman, in Hebrew, Isha, because she was taken of man, Ish. This is at last a true companion, a true friend, somebody he can rely on. And then in verse 24, we get the, the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two shall become one. That's marriage. That's marriage. The two who are not identical but complementary, male and female, coming together, the two becoming one. Different and yet unified. Not exactly the same, but similar, complementary, Friends, helpers, becoming one. And that unity out of two different is meant to be a reflection of the very nature of God. God the Father is not God the Son, who is not God the Spirit. And yet in perfect mystery, it's profound beyond what we can understand. God is one. And that is a deeper reality than marriage, but marriage is meant to be a reflection of that. That out of the diversity comes a unity. Marriage is meant to reflect that. Which is why adultery is so against the very heart and nature of God Himself. God created a human relationship to mirror who He is in His very core. And so when adultery enters in, it, it separates, it ruins, it, it tears at the sacred design for the one flesh union of marriage. God intended for this to be a lifelong commitment displayed 
with physical and relational exclusivity. No one comes between these two. And yet adultery rips at just that bringing apart, tearing apart, ripping at that intended unity. Jesus, over and over again in the Bible, we, Genesis 2, 23, 24, get quoted uh, for, for understanding, or, or yeah, 22, get quoted for understanding marriage. Jesus quotes it in Genesis 2, 22, in Mark 10, 8. He said, the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one. And then he adds his, his, his commentary to that, and he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God joined together a man and a woman in marriage. If you are married, you may think about your relationship, and think about all the things that, that led up to the day where you said, I do, and you were formerly married. And you may not know this, but God did that. God's the one that brought a marriage together. Doesn't matter where they're from, or their history, or whatever, God brought marriage together. And so he intended the two to become one exclusively and for a lifetime. And that's why adultery is against God's heart, because it's ripping that, ripping that apart. Now just to be clear, this is not to say that, that the Bible commands divorce after a case of adultery. We, we long for and pray for redemption, reconciliation, wholeness. There's an exception. Jesus says that, does, that divorce may be permissible after, after an adultery. But just to be clear, because I'm not misunderstood, we long for reconciliation, even after the physical union's been, been broken. And sometimes it's not possible, but we pray, we pray that it is. We get at God's heart about the why, why this is so, why God would choose this to make the top ten. He's only got ten, he's picking ten, and this makes the top ten because of how central marriage is to God's design for humanity. And that's also what makes it so devastating for us to look around and see how prevalent adultery is. It makes it it, it aches God's heart for adultery to be as common as it is. The attack on our marriage is so devastating when we realize that it's not just a few of us, but many, many of us who are sinning against God in this way. And you may be that, wait, 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 oh, yes, I, I know some people, but not me, not me. Well, Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's why, I said, so many of us are already guilty of adultery. Lust is adultery in the heart. Lust is adultery in the heart. Our, our intention, God's intention for marriage is this sacred design where God has, has revealed for us, for man and woman, to be united together in the one flesh union of marriage and adultery tears at that. It rips at that. But it's not just the physical, literal, external adultery that tears at that. Lust itself tears at the heart, at, at adultery, because it is in our heart. If our impure thoughts, really, if our impure thoughts uh, are running through our mind, if our impure thoughts are filled, if our minds are filled with impure thoughts, then we are already going against God's command. This is similar to what we saw last week in the sixth command against murder. Jesus said, if you've heard that it was said, if, I, if, uh, if someone commits murder, they can be condemned. He said, if you have hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. That's because hate and murder are two points along the same path. And similar here with adultery, lust and adultery are two points on the same path. When it comes to our mind, when the way we think, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us, take every thought captive to Christ. Every thought captive. That's the goal. The way we use our mind. Every thought, every passing thought will be captive to Christ, not captive to the things of our flesh.
When we look at God's word, God's standard is not just set at our external obedience to adultery. His standard is a lot higher than that. It's at the standard of our hearts. That's the standard of what we believe, how we feel in our hearts, and what we're desiring with our hearts. For many of us, at least at one time or another, we have fallen prey to this, fallen prey to the lust of the flesh. And that too tears at God's sacred design for marriage. Jesus' explanation here of, a, of an expanded seventh command beyond just the physical and literal to the heart level points to the, the bigger picture of, of the Bible's description of our own sex, of, 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 of how sex is intended to be practiced according to the Bible. And it's a pretty simple uh, explanation in the Bible. It's not, not overly complicated. Sex in the Bible is a glorious, delightful gift meant to be celebrated between one man and one woman within the covenantal commitment of marriage. And that's it. That's it. Anywhere else outside of that is going against God's intention for sex. And the world thinks that's crazy. The world thinks that's absolutely, <coughs> excuse me, thinks that is absolutely crazy. We, uh, outside the world, outside, even inside, unfortunately, too often, the world practices all kinds of other um, other acts that are not faithful to God's command. So sex outside of marriage, before marriage, sex with somebody other than somebody you're married to, looking at images of sex or nudity, that all of that is outside of God's intention, God's sanctified intention for marriage. And it has horrendous effects in our lives far beyond what many of us often understand it does. The, the, the things that are on our screens and our images are just a, a, the tip of the iceberg of what's happening all around the world because of, of our insatiable desire for sexual pleasure. There is an entire world of sex trafficking and sex workers and slaves, the people that are caught and bound up in a world that they don't want to be in, or at least they don't, you know, depend on the situation, but they don't want to be there. And it's driven by this insatiable desire for people more and more and more. And the trage tragedy is that the people on both ends of that are enslaved. The people creating it and the people watching it. Because we are captive to our own desires. There's a downward spiral that lust so often brings in people's lives. Because it doesn't lead anywhere helpful. It leads to, leads to more and more captivity, not freedom. The desire is often for, for joy, for pleasure, and yet it goes exactly the opposite way. It leads to more and more pain and more and more shame. Lust craves satisfaction, but it's, it's a desire that can't ever be met in that kind of way. The desire for that is to, 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 to please oneself, and yet it never works. It never works. We were at a, a marriage event yesterday, and somebody afterwards told me a story about uh, a couple who, uh, there's, a, there's a, a parable, I think they got this from somebody else, so a parable of some, a man who, who goes and visits one couple, and they're stuck in some kind of system, whatever, where uh, they, they look famished. And there's a couple of people there, and they just look like they haven't eaten in forever. And the man's trying to figure out what's going on. And about that time, somebody rings a bell, and, and the two people go, go into the dinner hall. And there's an, an enormous amount of food, lavish foods, beautiful food. And they sit down, and they realize that uh, the man watching them realizes this couple, they have to eat with the utensils, and the utensils are longer than their arm. And so they spend the entire time meal trying to, trying to find a way to get the food. They're trying to flip it up in the air or something, and they can't get the food to their mouths. And so the bell rings and they have to leave again and they're frustrated because they didn't get any food. 
the man that got to see that got to go visit another couple, and it looks pretty similar, a man and a woman, and they're, they're, they seem happy and healthy, and they're very, very good condition. Similar thing, the, the bell rings, and they go into a, a dining hall where there's lavish food, and it's delicious, and they, too, have to eat with utensils that are longer than their arms. But they figured something out. They take the food, and they feed it to one another. When we come to sex, when we come to pleasure, and we're just about receiving, just about trying to get something for ourselves, it never satisfies. It never satisfies. But within the covenant of marriage, when we're willing to say, this is about something I can give, not something that I can get, that's where we find joy. That's where we find joy. It grieves the heart of God that so many times people view sex and look outside of marriage in ways to try to please ourselves, to try to, to, excuse me, try to get something for ourselves. And it distorts and it twists something that was intended to be a beautiful gift that God gave to man. This week, Evan pointed out something to me. He said, you know, the, some of the most beautiful gifts that God gives are the places where, where Satan so often attacks, doesn't he? he? He attacks the things that are meant to be the, the highest good. And for marriage, as, as it is intended to reveal God's own nature, that, that of course is going to be a place where the, where the devil attacks. Satan attacks our marriage from every angle he can. It's a battleground. So, of course, there's going to be casualties. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But instead, we should be seeking for reconciliation, for redemption, and for wholeness. So this morning, to see the, to see the depth of that, I want, to, I want to try something. I'm going to take a poll to see how many of you have sinned against God's design for sex. I'm going to read a long list here, and you just raise your hands when this applies to you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I think if we did, first of all, it would be a terrible thing. Don't do that. But we would see we're all here, aren't we? We're all here. If, if adultery, sex outside of marriage, before marriage, lust in our hearts, if this is all condemned in this command, which it is, we're all here. There is no one who is good. Not one. If you, as I read that to you, as we've read this, maybe you're filled with, with guilt and shame and, and, and condemnation. And you need to hear we're, we're all right there with you. We're all right there with you. No one is good, not even one. We have all been unfaithful. We have all sinned against God's intentions. Remember we said the very first, we said so many times you, when you break one of the commands, you're actually breaking the first as well. And how much is that true here? God's, when we break the seventh command, we're saying, I, I'm God. I want to set the rules. We're breaking the first command. And what I want you to notice here is that so often this, this adultery, physical, is also something we do spiritually against God. We are the bride of Christ. We are God's bride, God's spouse. And tragically, all through the Bible, we have been unfaithful. God's people are pictured as this, this metaphor, this, this marriage. We're meant to be a faithful bride to Christ. And yet, we are so often unfaithful. The call to the first command of you shall have no other gods before me is a call to loyalty. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to exclusivity. And yet, all of us fail that one. All of us, time and time again. Uh, a pastor in Nashville, Ray Orland Jr., he traced this theme throughout the Bible uh, in a book called uh, God's Unfaithful Wife. God's Unfaithful Wife. And uh, this is the point he makes. He said, the issue, in the all, the issue is the all-sufficiency of the Lord. Where does life in all its richness and fullness come from? Does it come from the Lord alone or the Lord plus others? 
If it comes from the Lord alone, then we will look obediently to Him alone for, all, all, for that life. But if it comes from the Lord plus others, then we will spread our allegiance around because the Lord is not enough. That's the real question of the seventh commandment. That's the real question about our, the condition of our hearts. Do we believe we can be exclusive to the Lord alone? Is He enough? Or do we need to go elsewhere? Do we need, do we need to spread our allegiance elsewhere to find life? God's people all through the Bible, from beginning to end, or at least until the last couple chapters, don't trust that God's enough. Don't trust that God's enough. We are unfaithful to God. And I'll, I'll let you look up because some of these, some of these uh, references are, some, use some pretty harsh language. So you can look up Isaiah 121 or Jeremiah 3 or Ezekiel 16 later on your own. I won't read them aloud in the presence of small ears. I'll read you just a couple of them, though. Uh, Jeremiah 5, 7, Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. This isn't a, a physical adultery. It's talking about the spiritual condition of their hearts. They have rejected God. They are not exclusive to God anymore. The same metaphor continues in the New Testament. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Jesus' own brother, James, James 4, 4, he says, You adulterous people, or Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. All these are examples where people use this metaphor of adultery to say, thanks man, use this command of adultery, to, uh, the forbidding adultery to say, we are not faithful to Christ. We are not faithful to God. Over and over again, we see that not just, uh, not just the beginning of the Bible, but all the way through. We're breaking the seventh command by not being faithful. So I hope you can see that there's not just a few of us, but all of us who are breaking this command by not being faithful to Christ. And if you can see the depth of that, of the way we're breaking, I, I also want to tell you that because of the good news that comes. If you see the depth of our sin, you'll greater in a greater way see the glory of God and the grace that He offers us. In the Bible, God's heart is for us. Though we are faithless, He continues to be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Throughout the Bible, we are over and over again the unfaithful bride of Christ. But do you know how God relates to His unfaithful bride? He pursues us. He pursues us. God pursues His unfaithful bride. In the most remarkable act of grace ever given, God showed love to His bride, though we are unfaithful. Probably the most famous example of that comes from the prophet Hosea. If you know Hosea's story, God used the prophet Hosea to live out in a very physical, tangible way the spiritual reality that was happening in Israel. The people of Israel had forsaken the one true God and so Hosea was called to love a woman, to take a woman as his spouse, though he knew from the beginning that she would be unfaithful to him. God tells Hosea that his marriage is going to be this living illustration, and so he knows she will be unfaithful. And yet he does not cut her off and divorce her. He goes after her. He pursues her in her unfaithfulness. Now God disciplines those he loves. There is discipline there for our unfaithfulness. 
but it is a discipline out of love in order to bring us back home. Hosea, uh, as he practices that, as he seeks that, uh, he goes after his wife, calling for her repentance. We read in Hosea 2, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of anchor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as the door of her youth at the time that she has come out of the land. And again in verse 19 and 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God pursues us. Even though we're unfaithful, He comes after us and pursues us to show us His love. He did that in the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. And you know what we kept doing? Coming back and leaving. Coming back and leaving. Coming back and leaving. But God knew this was the plan all along. And He had a way once and for all to save His people. And that was through His Son, Jesus Christ. We saw God's original plan in, in Genesis chapter 2 for His perfect design of marriage, for a marriage that was meant to be holy and sacred unto the Lord. But He also knew something else. We're a sinful people. We're going to reject Him. And so from the beginning, God planned for marriage to reflect the glory of God in an even greater way. And that was, we were intended, marriage was intended to reflect the love of Christ for his church. We read in Ephesians 5, 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting Genesis 2, he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What did, what did Christ do for the church? He loved her. He loved her enough to give his very life for her. God's people, we are an unfaithful bride, and yet he pursues us in love. Did he do that because we're beautiful? Well, some of you are, but that's not why he loved us. Did he do it because we were righteous and holy? No, some of you are, at least a little bit, sometimes, but that's not what it was. In reality, we are all an unfaithful bride. He pursued us and he loved us because he loves us, because he wanted a relationship with us. Romans 5, 8, he showed his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ pursued his bride to win us back, in the greatest act of self-sacrifice ever. He laid down his very life for us. He did that so that we could have a relationship with him. The gospel reveals us to us that in the universe, the greatest reality of the universe is not cold, it's not dark. It's a romance. It's what God has done to pursue a relationship with us. And the beauty of the gospel is that that romance, that love is meant to transform us. It's meant to change us. God's true bride, we who are His, his bride, his, his beloved, are transformed by grace. You see, when God pursues us, He did so with an intention to change us. God pursues His unfaithful bride. He doesn't just pursue us. He redeems us. He redeems us. God redeems His unfaithful bride. Though we are unfaithful, God in His pursuit has come and He's brought a change to us because He brought us out of captivity. You see, I said that about you know, pornography or going after, going after um, uh, unfaithful relationships. There's this captivity to that. You get caught in that kind of lifestyle. But the reality is all sin is that way. All sin is, an, is a captor to us. 
we, we get stuck in sin and on our own. We cannot be liberated from it. Somebody else had to come and bring freedom to us. And that's what happened in Jesus Christ. You and I were slaves to our sin. We had a debt that we couldn't pay, that only Christ's blood could pay. And we had a captor, the devil himself. Sin itself was our captor. And only Christ could bring us out of it. Our memory verse for this month hits at that exact thing. Romans 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Sin enslaves Sexual sin and all kinds of sin. It enslaves us. And yet God has brought us to freedom. He has set us free. So brother, sister, walk in that freedom. Live in liberty. Don't live captive to the things of the world. Don't live in captivity, whether it be sexual sin or some other sin. Don't live there. If you know Christ, you are not bound by that. That is not the ultimate reality of your life. God is. And He has made a way for you to live in liberty. For us as Christians to walk in the obedience to the seventh command and obedience to Christ is to walk to people as people who are living in the light, walking in freedom, not walking in darkness. So we, just like Hosea knew that his wife would be tempted to go astray and to continue in the same sins that she did over and over again, we have to be aware that that temptation, though we are free, that temptation still exists. So we've got to live in a way that is is aware and put up some guardrails around us that we can walk in the freedom, walk in the life of Christ, and not continue in the same paths we have before. If you're, if you're a guy and you own a smartphone, which is probably everybody here, I think all of us, whether this has been a temptation in your past or not, all of us should have some kind of screen accountability. There's too many good ones out there not to have it. Whether it's been a temptation for you in the past or not, just have it as a safeguard to say, this isn't, I'm not going to let this temptation into my life. Male and female, wherever, whoever you work with, you need to have some safeguards in your relationships. Who are you close to just by the nature of the way you go about your life? Who are the people around you that you're close to? Are you aware of those relationships? Are you honest about those relationships with your spouse? Anything in secret is hidden and it's dark and it has power. Bring it to the light. Be honest with your spouse about temptation. Walk in a way that's accountable, that we have awareness about what's going on around us. No secrets, no, no, no hidden things from our spouses. Your phone should not be locked from your spouse. Your bank account shouldn't be locked from your spouse. This should be a place of open, open and transparency. Put safeguards in our relationships so we don't walk down paths we shouldn't walk. Dress modestly. Treat women with respect. Don't blame your lust on somebody else's clothes. It's your sin. Be honest about your own sin and walk in the light. And we can do so with hope, because we are unfaithful, and we have been unfaithful so often. But as people who walk in the light, we know we're at what's to come, and what's to come is far greater. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's happening at the end of creation? At the end of when Christ comes back and all is made new? There's a wedding. There's a wedding. You know who's in the wedding? If you know Jesus, you are. You're a part of the bride of Christ. You come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoy a feast in perfect purity, perfect white, perfect holiness, enjoying our husband, our heavenly husband, God himself. 
Revelation 21.2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We are the bride of Christ, and one day we will walk in perfect holiness, perfect purity with Christ himself. So if you have the gift of marriage, if God gives you the gift of marriage, the, the, the blessing from him, then what you have in your marriage is an opportunity. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's an opportunity to experience in a small way what Christ has offered, what will, he will offer us in eternity. He's offered you a, a sliver of that, even here on earth. So enjoy it, delight in it, protect it, pursue your spouse and be faithful in that relationship. And if you're not given the gift of marriage, or you were at one point, but it was taken away, unfortunately, some way or another by death or divorce or whatever else may have come, you too can live with hope because the best is still to come. The best is still to come. If you had an experience of marriage, it was, it was a sliver of, of what's to come but the best is going to far outweigh even the greatest earthly marriage. We can live with hope knowing that Christ, when He comes back, will give us the greatest joy and delight for all of eternity. Whatever we have here on earth is a privilege, is a joy to be protected and delighted in, but it points us forward to the greatest hope that is yet to come. We are a part of a, a divine romance that's far beyond us, far beyond any one relationship, far beyond what we could experience or, or, or imagine and it's God pursuing and redeeming, transforming us as His holy bride so that we can live with Him for eternity. May we not be adulterers in any sense. May we live faithfully because He's faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us grace upon grace. As we look to our own lives, we're convicted of so many ways we sin against You, so many ways that we battle our own temptations and desires. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would be people who repent, who turn, who are convicted, and who walk with you. God, for any that today are feeling overwhelmed by the burden of our guilt, may we lay it at your feet, trusting that you are God and that you can bring reconciliation and redemption no matter, no matter the circumstance. God, you can bring us forgiveness and grace. God, for those who are not walking with you, may we find conviction. May we repent and find that grace. But God, for all of us, may we live with hope, knowing that the, the greatest is still to come, that the greatest joy, the greatest relationship, the greatest peace in Christ is still to come. In the final marriage supper, Lord, we pray that we'll live in expectation and in hope of that day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.